There's so much health advice floating around, online, among friends. But who can you really trust? Trust the experts. Listen to the world's brightest medical minds, our very own Cleveland Clinic experts. We ask them real questions, tough and intimate health questions, and we get real answers, all originally recorded live. Hi, thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Nada Youssef, and you're listening to Health Essentials Podcast by Cleveland Clinic. Today, we're broadcasting from Cleveland Clinic main campus here in Cleveland, Ohio, and we're here with Dr. Scott Gabbard. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Dr. Gabbard is a gastroenterologist in the Center for Esophageal and Swallowing Disorders, and today we are talking about acid reflux. And please remember, this is for informational purposes only, and it's not intended to replace your own physician's advice. All right. So before we start, I want to ask you, so you work for the Center for Esophageal and Swallowing Disorder, and we're talking about acid reflux. Is that uh, a swallowing disorder? Yeah. So acid reflux, it's a great question. Acid reflux is very common. And what happens is the esophagus is a tube of muscle. Now it's made up of smooth muscle predominantly. So not the muscles of your biceps and leg muscles, but muscles that like your heart and arteries, that's smooth muscle. So the esophagus extends from the throat down through the chest cavity, through the diaphragm muscle, which is a sheet of muscle that separates the chest and abdomen. Once the esophagus gets below the abdomen, it joins up with the stomach. Mm -hmm. And when you swallow, the esophagus opens and then squeezes food down. The valve at the very bottom that separates the esophagus and stomach is a ring of muscle. It should be nice and closed. When you swallow, it opens, food passes through, and then it closes. Reflux is a disorder when that valve opens when it's not supposed to. Stomach contents, which contain a lot of acid, digestive juices, enzymes, the food you eat, can flow backwards from the stomach into the esophagus and cause symptoms. Now, interestingly, when they've done testing on normal individuals who have no complaints of reflux symptoms, they've actually found that normal individuals can have up to an hour of reflux per day and not feel it. So up to an hour of reflux is actually considered within normal limits. But patients who are having symptoms, if we do testing on them and find they have two hours, three hours or more, they have problematic reflux that, that needs to be addressed. And obviously we'll talk about our diagnostic tests later on. But for now, know that it's not uh, abnormal to have a little bit of reflux throughout the day. So the symptoms of reflux... So the typical symptoms of reflux are heartburn, so burning um, below uh, the sternum, sort of mid-chest burning, especially after meals or at night when you lay down, or regurgitation, the sense of stomach contents, either with acid or just volume of fluid and food flowing back up through the chest into the throat and mouth. So the major symptoms are burning, heartburn, and the regurgitation. Okay. So when you say it's normal to have acid reflux about an hour a day, mm -hmm. so is it normal to have it right after you eat? Is it normal to have it just throughout the day? When is it? Yeah, it's a good question. When we looked at um, normal individuals, you can have up to about 40 minutes of reflux during the day and about 15 to 20 minutes of reflux at night, give or take. But most people don't feel it. So you can have acid in your esophagus and most people don't feel it. Certainly, if you start to feel this commonly, it becomes problematic. It becomes very bothersome, painful. That's when you have a problem. 
Sure. Okay, great. So heartburn is a symptom of acid reflux, right? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So what about GERD? Yeah, so GERD stands for gastroesophageal reflux disease. So that's when that stomach contents flowing back up through the valve becomes problematic. So GERD is actually having the um, stomach contents reflux back up into the esophagus. Interestingly, you mentioned the symptom of heartburn. So heartburn just means burning in the middle of the chest. Now, interestingly, acid reflux is not the only cause of heartburn. There are other causes. So not all burning is due to acid. You can get damage from certain medications, different pain medicines like non-steroidal anti-inflammatory medicines, and even some antibiotics can cause ulcers in the esophagus, which can give you burning. Different infections, like some viruses, rarely can cause burning in the chest. And then we're finding more and more that many patients who feel heartburn, yet when we do testing, they have normal levels of acid in their esophagus, actually have a condition called functional heartburn, which essentially is nerve confusion in the esophagus. They feel like there's acid in the esophagus, but when we do testing, there's no acid present. And it actually is the nerves being confused, sending a signal to their brain saying something's burning, when in fact it's not acid present. It's the nerves. Confusion. It's the nerve confusion, yeah. So um, here at the Cleveland Clinic main campus, generally we see the patients who don't get better with the acid medicines, which we'll discuss later. So they're driving from multiple states away because they can't figure out why they're not getting better. And at an academic institution, studies have shown about 75% of the time when a patient comes to us with labeled as GERD, having heartburn that's not getting better with acid medicine, 75% of the time it's actually this nerve confusion disorder called functional heartburn. And the testing we have available can allow us to differentiate, is this truly due to reflux, tr due to acid coming back, or is this a different condition? And that's why it's so helpful to come to a place like the Cleveland Clinic that has so many different testing modalities. We can really figure this out uh, better for many patients who've been frustrated for years. Excellent. Thank you. Now, are there other symptoms of acid reflux associated with heartburn? Um, yeah, so that's a great question. So like I mentioned, the typical symptoms are heartburn and regurgitation, feeling things coming back. Mm -hmm. There are also atypical symptoms. So you can get cough from acid reflux. You can get throat burning from acid reflux. You can get a symptom called globus, which is very interesting. It's a sensation of feeling like there's a lump in the back of your throat, but then with all testing, you know, there's no abnormality found, but acid reflux can actually cause that symptom as well. Now, with cough, with throat burning, with this globus sensation, there are many other causes. So reflux is not the only cause. And so we often find patients who've had cough for years labeled as reflux, but they're not getting better with reflux medicine. We do our testing, and we can also find that it's actually nerve confusion causing their cough. Same is true with globus. So reflux can cause these disorders, but it's not the only cause. So that's where testing, if you're not getting better with the, the typical medicines used, is so important. So you say globus is the uh, feeling of a lump on the back of your throat? Yeah, it feels like there's a lump in the back of your throat or a fullness or a tightness in your throat. We've, it's actually common. About 10% of the population can get this you know, at, at one time or another. And many of these patients 
go through test after test after test and their doctors can't figure out why. Mm. And then they actually come to us and we find it's a nerve confusion disorder or due to acid reflux. And so, again, you know, there, there are many different symptoms of reflux, but these symptoms are fairly nonspecific. So there are many causes for these symptoms. So reflux certainly can cause all the symptoms I mentioned, but many other things can as well. So it can be a little tricky to diagnose. Sure. We see patients who have been going through test after test after test for years until they come to us and we can better understand why they're having their symptoms. And going back to that lump, um, it does it ever present itself anywhere in, in the esophagus or is it only in the back of the throat? Yeah, so at least in terms of globus, by definition, it's a throat okay. symptom. That said, there are many other nerve confusion disorders. You can have a disorder where it feels like you're having difficulty swallowing. You feel like food gets stuck in the chest, yet on all the testing, everything looks normal. And so that's called functional dysphagia. That's a nerve confusion disorder where the esophagus gets confused, even though everything's working fine, you feel like things are getting stuck. And so that would be sort of the nerve confusion disorder, you know, when it's in the chest as opposed to in the throat. Very good to know. Thank you for that. So we talked about acid in the stomach that comes up Mm -hmm. with acid reflux. Let's talk about why is there acid in the stomach to begin with? Yeah, it's a great question. So our stomach should have very, very acidic contents to help us digest our food. In fact, the acid level of the stomach should be, you know, up to a thousand times greater than like the acid level of orange juice. So it should be very, very acidic in the stomach. That's normal. That helps us to digest our food. In the stomach, it's totally fine. In the stomach, you should have high levels of acid and it's no problem. If that highly acidic contents flows backwards into the esophagus, that can cause the burning, the regurgitation Mm -hmm. that can be so problematic. And so in patients where they're having high levels of this reflux, they will get the symptoms that I mentioned. So does the stomach have a lining that's then protecting it from the acid that maybe the esophagus Absolutely, yeah. So when you look at it under a microscope, there are completely different types of cells that line the esophagus and stomach. So the stomach is lined with a particular set of cells that do not register when acid's present. Mm -hmm. Under the microscope, the esophagus actually looks kind of similar to skin. And so you can imagine, you know, pouring acid on your skin, you're going to feel it. Same's true in the esophagus. So when acid comes back up, the esophagus does sense that, and then patients get the symptoms that I mentioned. Great, thank you. So what lifestyle factors contribute to acid reflux? That's a great question. So like I said, normal individuals can get up to an hour of reflux per day, but there are clearly some uh, risk factors for developing more reflux. In particular, abdominal obesity has been shown to actually cause that bottom valve to open more when it's not supposed to. So with the obesity crisis in the U.S., we're seeing much more acid reflux. Uh, Other conditions, uh, smoking, cigarette smoking has been shown to, again, affect the valve to allow the valve to open when it's not supposed to. So smoking is a risk factor. Um, Diet. So diet is really interesting. Uh, A lot of things get attributed to diet. You know, doctors mention all sorts of things, you know, don't eat this, don't eat that when you have reflux. Mm -hmm. Very little of it has been shown to have an effect. Interestingly, there was a study that did suggest that eating more than 15 to 20 grams of fat and eating more than 500 calories at a meal did result in more reflux after that meal. 
But most other things that doctors have mentioned, avoiding acidic foods, avoiding spicy foods, avoiding mint, avoiding chocolate, avoiding caffeine, none of that's been shown to really make a big difference, believe it or not. And my patients love me. I tell them, no, you can drink coffee as long as it doesn't cause problems. They love me for that. So yeah, so, so interestingly, it may be more of a volume and fat issue, but all the classic things that doctors have mentioned didn't really make a difference when they've studied it for what it's worth. Wow, I'm surprised um, about the spicy. Yeah, well, it doesn't cause more reflux. You feel it more because you, you sense that capsaicin so you feel it more, but it doesn't actually result in more reflux. It's just you get the same amount of things coming back up. It's just you're feeling it more because there's a lot of that capsaicin, that spice in there. So that's, that's actually where it causes more symptoms, mm-hmm. not so much it, it causes more acid to come up. Um, but for pregnancy, certainly anyone um, who's been pregnant, I've been told, generally develops reflux, especially in that third trimester. And it's a few factors. One, the hormones do cause the lower valve to open more. And then two, increased intra-abdominal pressure from the baby actually pushes up and actually uh, results in more reflux. So, so actually, uh, reflux is very, very common in pregnancy. Okay. Um, lastly, there is an anatomic disorder called a hiatal hernia. So I mentioned that the esophagus travels through the diaphragm, the sheet of muscle that separates the chest and abdomen, and joins the stomach under the diaphragm. Now, if the stomach comes up above the diaphragm, that is a hiatal hernia. So when part of the stomach is displaced and actually is in the chest cavity. Now, interestingly, studies have shown that up to 50-55% of U.S. adults have a small hiatal hernia. So a small hiatal hernia in and of itself doesn't mean you're going to get reflux. It's very common. But a large hiatal hernia, and we're talking about when three centimeters or more of the stomach is up in the chest cavity, does increase the risk of having acid reflux or GERD. So how do you know if you have the hiatal hernia? Um, Because that can cause the acid reflux, but is there a feeling? Is there something that can present itself? It's a great question. So you cannot feel a hiatal hernia in and of itself. So that's something that would be found on a test, either an endoscopy when we stick a camera down to look at the lining of the esophagus and stomach. Mm -hmm. You can see it on different radiologic tests like a barium swallow where a patient would drink liquid barium Mm -hmm. and it would coat the esophagus and you can see the anatomy or something like a CAT scan can actually show a hiatal hernia. But I do have to mention, again, having a small hiatal hernia is very common. Mm -hmm. So for all of our listeners, if you've been told you have a small small hiatal hernia, that's nothing worrisome. But certainly a large hiatal hernia can result in reflux, but, but hiatal hernias are very common. So just having a small one doesn't mean you're going to get reflux. It doesn't mean it has to be fixed with surgery. The vast, vast majority of patients with hiatal hernia have no symptoms, don't need surgery to fix it. It's very common. All right. So I want to talk about things that people can do to avoid acid reflux, maybe preventable measures besides um, stopping all the risks, you know, that obesity, smoking, and all this stuff. What other things could we do to avoid that? Yeah, so it's interesting. So again, going back to what doctors tell patients, very little of it has actually been shown to work in real studies. So the things that have been shown to work, if you're obese, so if you have a BMI greater than 30, losing, say, around three points on your BMI has been shown to help with reflux. If you're a smoker, quitting smoking has been shown to help with reflux. 
And then if you have symptoms at night, when you lay down and you have symptoms at night, elevating the head of the bed, and we'll get to sleeping on the left side, has been shown to help. Um, essentially everything else, lifestyle factors, has not been shown in studies. So like I mentioned, avoiding caffeine, avoiding chocolate, avoiding soda, acidic foods, unfortunately hasn't been shown to help. Yeah. So how about when you say when sleeping, I know a lot of people, um, acid reflux, the, the symptoms come up when you're sleeping the most. Yeah. And I hear that sleeping on your left side helps. Can we talk about why sleeping on the left side helps? Yeah, absolutely. So when you lay flat, you lose the um, function of gravity, right? When you're upright, you have gravity working for you so that if things come back up, they fall right back down quickly back into the stomach. When you lay flat, you lose gravity. Now, interestingly, if you lay flat and you're just on your back or if you're on your right side, the valve is submerged. So the valve is underneath where everything pools in the stomach. So if the valve opens, everything rushes into the esophagus. When you sleep on your left side, your valve is positioned such that it is on top of where everything pools. So there's a layer of air that separates where everything pools from the stomach. So if the valve opens, only air comes back up. And interestingly, there was a physician who was here at the Cleveland Clinic back in the 90s who did some very interesting studies, a couple studies, that actually demonstrated the benefit of being on your left side for reflux. His name was uh, Dr. Steve Shea, and he retired from here about five years ago. Uh, but uh, he was one of the pioneers in positioning at night. Now, what's interesting is, you know, I talk to Dr. Shea all the time, and he struggled with trying to figure out how to um, get patients to remain on their left side. And uh, here at the Cleveland Clinic, we were actually um, lucky enough to be part of uh, a study where a pillow was developed um, that actually locks you on your left side. And it was shown in some very prelim studies to reduce reflux by about 80, 85%. And when we looked at it in our patients with heartburn and regurgitation, we actually found that it helped symptoms at night by about 70% or so. And we expanded that and we used it in pregnant women. And we got the same results. It was about 70% symptom improvement at night, which is huge for pregnancy, you know, helping them without giving them medications. Uh, we've even used it in our lung transplant patients now because acid reflux can damage the lung transplant. If acid gets into a a lung transplant, it can actually put the patient at risk for rejection. So we're using this pillow that locks you in place on your left side for all of our patients who get a lung transplant and have reflux, and we're looking to see what effect that has on their survival. We know that it reduces their reflux by about 70% at night. We've been very uh, excited about that study. That's great, because even uh, I remember when I was pregnant, the doctor always told me to try to sleep on my left side, and it's the organs, it's the positioning of Absolutely. your body, right? Absolutely, right. yes. You want to make sure that valve is separated from where things layer in the stomach so that when it opens, only air comes back up. Yeah. And then also don't eat late at night. Is that a thing or? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. <laughs> so again, it hasn't been shown in studies, but you know, physiologically, it takes the stomach about four to six hours to empty fully after a meal. So you can imagine if you go and you, you know, you go to a fast food place and you get a burger and fries and a big drink and then lay down, you're going to get significant amount of reflux because it's going to take your stomach a few hours to empty. So we generally tell our patients, if you have a lot of symptoms at night, try not to eat within 
three or four hours of laying down because that's how long it takes your stomach to digest the food. That's how long it takes for that meal to empty fully from the stomach. Good information. Thank yeah. you. Now, I want to talk about some of the treatments, um, maybe the over-the-counter medications. Um, I know like Tums and all these antacids, are those safe to take regularly? Yeah, so it's a great question. So if you have very infrequent symptoms, you know, so you're talking less than once a week, you know, say Thanksgiving's coming up, mm-hmm. you know, say you, you know you get symptoms after Thanksgiving dinner, certainly something like an antacid uh, would be great. Antacids neutralize stomach acid. So they work pretty well if you have infrequent symptoms. Mm-hmm. One um, alternative to antacids is that some of them actually contain a chemical called alginate. And alginate is very interesting. It's derived from seaweed, believe it or not, and it floats on top of all the acid in the stomach. There's the food that you eat, and then there's a layer of acid that floats on top of the food called the acid pocket, Um, antacids that contain alginate actually float on top of that acid pocket and form a mechanical barrier to cover the acid so that what comes back up is more the alginate than actually acid. So if the regular antacids aren't working for a patient, one nice step-up therapy is looking for an antacid that contains alginate. Um, Now, those medicines neutralize acid. So they treat the acid that's already there. If you have more frequent symptoms than once per week, we start talking about treating with a medicine that prevents the stomach from making acid. And right now in the U.S., there are two major um, types of medications that prevent the stomach from making acid. One category that's been around since the 70s is called the histamine 2 receptor antagonist or an H2 blocker. Now, these are the types of medicines, ranitidine, Uh, famotidine that are available now over the counter and they do stop the stomach from making acid but a few caveats to using them this category of medications actually stop working within a week or two your body gets used to it and you get a condition called tachyphylaxis which means it stops working so they're good for short-term use Like if you know that, again, the holidays are coming up, you know you're going to have a few days where you're going to parties. So you can take them for a few days, but long term, they often don't work because your body gets used to them. Stomach acid levels go right back to baseline. One other thing that has been in the news lately is ranitidine, one of those H2 blockers. They've actually found levels of NDMA, which is a possible carcinogen. So a lot of ranitidine... Um, the past few weeks has been pulled from pharmacy shelves. We've gotten a lot of calls from patients. So certainly, um, if you've been on ranitidine, we recommend talking to your physician about alternatives. If you want to switch to a different medicine in that same category, like famotidine. But many of my patients who have been on the H2 blockers come to me and say they're not working. Mm -hmm. And I say, well, you know, yeah, we, we know that your body gets used to them after a couple of weeks, so they, they don't work well long-term. That's where we step up patients to another category of medicine called a proton pump inhibitors, which now have been around for about 30 years. They were um, introduced in the U.S. in the late 80s, and those stop the stomach from making acid, not fully, but they cut acid levels down considerably, and they continue to work. So your body doesn't get used to them, and so they do work long term. So these are in the category of medicines, proton pump inhibitors or PPIs, 
there had been some news a few years ago questioning if PPIs were related to conditions like kidney disease, dementia, there's some or bone fractures. There were fears that having too little acid in the stomach would lead to not absorbing nutrients well and things like kidney disease, dementia, or um, bone fractures. And what I tell patients, because we talk about these a lot in the gastroenterology community, these studies that were done four or five years ago were retrospective, so they looked backwards, which you have a lot of risk for error when you look backwards because there's a lot of different factors you can't control for. How often does the patient go out to fast food restaurants? How you know, do they exercise? What other medical conditions do they have? You can only control for a few of those. So it showed a very, very weak association between proton pump inhibitors and these things like kidney disease or dementia. Scared a lot of doctors into taking their patients off the acid medicines. In the GI community, when um, you know our statistical experts looked at those studies, they actually found, boy, this this really looks more like statistical abnormality, but not a real cause and effect. So interestingly, just a couple months ago, they released the results of a very large 17,000 patient study that showed no increased risk of dementia, kidney disease, bone fracture, heart attack, stroke, death, pneumonia. So it was a well done, it was done forwards, prospective. And so now, obviously if the patients need the proton pump inhibitors, we discuss the risk and benefit. We do think these medicines are safe for the right patient. So they work very, very well at controlling acid. If you have ulcers in the esophagus from acid reflux, the proton pump inhibitors are the only medicines that have been shown to reliably heal ulcers from acid reflux. So they are very helpful. But again, if you're going to be on them long term, I think you should discuss with your physician the risks and benefits, but they are safe to take in the majority of patients. I want to go back to the NDMA, and you mentioned it could be uh, cancer-causing, or Mm -hmm. it is. Um, is, Are there any other medications out there that are being recalled from pharmacies that our audience should know about? Yeah, so I know that one of the blood pressure medicines Mm. uh, was recently recalled um, because of low levels of NDMA. And again, absolutely. So, So again, you know, pay attention to the news. We're getting more and more reports of this. Now, it is... NDMA, it's still controversial at the absolute risk of cancer. So it's not like everyone who took ranitidine is going to develop stomach cancer from this. But there were very low levels. Again, the risk in different studies has been questioned. What is the true risk? But certainly if you're on a medicine that uh, you know has been linked to levels of NDMA, you should certainly talk to your physician about what is the risk and are there any alternatives that don't have that chemical? Yeah, very good question. Now, I know you mentioned uh, acid reflux does happen to many pregnant women. Mm-hmm. Um, are these medications safe for pregnant women? Yeah, it's a great question. So we do think that the proton pump inhibitors are safe. Most of them are in a category of um, for pregnancy that, that you know, they've found to be safe. That said, most OB, gyne, and most gastroenterology physicians... Mm-hmm try to limit their use, even though they are safe. So, you know, many of us will use antacids for, you know, pregnant women. Um, The H2 blockers have been used. And the proton pump inhibitors, if needed, can be used. And then, like I said, sleep positioning, 
we found 70% in um, uh, improvement in symptoms in pregnant patients. So using those lifestyle things may help as well. So um, for patients, I'm sorry, for without treatments, for, for patients that don't go see their doctor, that don't go see doctors mm-hmm. much, yeah. can this lead to more complications? Absolutely, absolutely. So the vast majority of patients who have reflux will not develop these worrisome complications. That said, reflux can lead to ulcers at the bottom of the esophagus from acid. And over time, those can bleed so that you can get bleeding from them. They can cause scarring and cause narrowing of the esophagus, which can cause difficulty swallowing. And that's called a stricture. And that would need to be um, treated by a gastroenterologist with a scope to stretch out the esophagus to help with swallowing. Um, But the most worrisome condition that is associated with reflux is esophageal cancer or esophageal adenocarcinoma. So over the past 20, 30 years, we've seen an uprise in the amount of esophageal adenocarcinoma that goes along with sort of, you know, the obesity crisis, the metabolic syndrome in the U.S. And so more and more patients are getting reflux and we're seeing higher levels of esophageal adenocarcinoma over the past few years. Now, um, cancer of the esophagus adenocarcinoma, generally comes from a precursor called Barrett's esophagus. So we mentioned the two different types of lining, the stomach lining and the esophagus lining. Rarely, um, patients who have chronic reflux, the lining of the esophagus begins to change and it looks more like intestine. So it goes away from looking like more like skin and it starts to look more like intestine. And that's due to repeated insult from acid injury plus genetics play a role. And um, that, if you have Barrett's, it's essentially when we're looking inside the esophagus on a scope, but the lining looks more like stomach than it does esophagus. So we take biopsies and the pathologist can confirm that. If you have Barrett's esophagus, you're at slight increased risk of having esophagus cancer. The risk is low. So if you just have Barrett's esophagus, the risk of it turning into esophagus cancer is 1 in 400 per year. So it's pretty low. That said, it's higher than the general population. So if you have Barrett's esophagus, the general recommendations are to get an endoscopy every three to five years to make sure it's not progressing towards cancer. And that progression is called dysplasia. So your gastroenterologist will take biopsies of the esophagus. One interesting thing is there were a few studies that were recently um, released that did actually demonstrate that those proton pump inhibitor medicines that I mentioned before do decrease the risk of Barrett's esophagus turning to cancer by about 70%. So it's a no-brainer that when we're taking care of a patient who has ulcers in their esophagus, that tightening called a stricture, or Barrett's esophagus, those patients absolutely need to be on a proton pump inhibitor indefinitely because in Barrett's esophagus it reduces the risk of that turning to cancer in ulcers it heals the ulcers and if you have a tight area uh, called a stricture after you dilate it being on those proton pump inhibitors reduces the risk of it coming back so those are conditions that absolutely patients need to be on those proton pump inhibitors long term 
So um, a lot of us freak out when we Google our symptoms. And yeah. um, esophageal you know, cancer sounds terrifying. Mm-hmm. So is there, are there symptoms um, that once you see this, like, is it, now you said blood. Would yeah. that be blood in urine? Would that be blood in stool? Would yeah. that be throwing up blood? Yeah, How it's a great that? question. So there are definitely some alarm symptoms that we worry about. So if you just have heartburn, regurgitation, you know, a couple of times, you know, once a week or a couple times a week, that's not an alarm symptom. But if you have evidence of bleeding, so that can be vomiting blood, that can be turning your stools from brown to dark, so black stools is a worrisome thing. That's a sign of bleeding in the upper gastrointestinal tract. Any difficulty swallowing, so we term that dysphagia. If you feel solids or liquids getting stuck as they go down through the chest, that's a worrisome sign. And that's something that you definitely should discuss with your physician because um, the general recommendation is if you have signs of bleeding, if you have dysphagia, if you feel things getting stuck as you swallow, those patients should get an endoscopy. So that's a, a scope with a camera on the end of it where a gastroenterologist or a surgeon would go down and take a look and look for those things I mentioned, ulcers a tight area called a stricture, make sure you don't have Barrett's, nothing that would increase your risk of turning to cancer. Um, that said, you know, having esophageal cancer is still pretty rare in the U.S., but certainly um, any patient who has those alarm symptoms, we recommend discussing with your physician right away because most cases we would want to perform an endoscopy, figure out what's going on. All right, one more question for you. Yeah. When you say difficulty swallowing, um, you're kind of pointing from your throat all mm-hmm. the way down to your chest. Yep. When I think of swallowing, I'm thinking in the back of my throat swallowing. You're saying it could be anywhere in the uh, esophageal area that you could feel something getting stuck. It's absolutely. not just the back. Yeah, absolutely. So um, like I said, the esophagus extends from the throat down to uh, the bottom of the chest. Mm-hmm. And so you can have things get stuck anywhere along that path. Um, now, what's really interesting is that the esophagus is very stupid. Not just, you know, not just our patients, but, but everyone's. So we get called in the middle of the night to pull out a piece of chicken or steak from someone's esophagus. And they'll point, they'll point to their throat and say, I, I feel it right here. We go down with the scope and it's actually down at the very bottom of the esophagus. Your brain can't localize where things are getting stuck. So that makes our job a little bit more difficult uh, because patients will feel like things are getting stuck way up high. We go down and the problem is way down low. So you're, you're, you know, again, that's where the nerves travel. So, um, where someone is feeling something doesn't actually mean that that's where the problem is. So that's where, again, talking to your physician and if you need testing, um, you know, that's where it's really important. And that sounds like that could also be like the nerve confusion that you mentioned. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, generally we mentioned the treatment, you know, the proton pump inhibitors, Mm -hmm. they work for the vast majority of patients who truly have reflux. But there is a subcategory of patients where they've been through antacids. They've been through the H2 blockers. They've been through proton pump inhibitors. None of it helped. So all the time I see patients who say, I've been on this medicine and I take this medicine four times a day, even though you're only supposed to take it twice a day. And they say, it's, it's just not working. And that's where we talk about doing testing to figure out what is truly the problem. So a scope can look, and like I said, it can find if you have ulcers, 
if you've got a tight area called a stricture. Make sure you don't have anything that could turn to cancer. The scope doesn't tell you how much reflux you have, or if reflux is truly the cause of your symptoms, it just tells you if there's damage. What we use is a, um, a test called a pH probe. And there are a few different types of pH probes. There's one that's a string that goes through your nose and it dangles in your esophagus for 24 hours. So it gets taped to your face and uh, patients wear it for 24 hours. There's also a wireless capsule which can be placed um, during an endoscopy that sucks on the lining of your esophagus and it's, it, it just is attached to your esophagus. It stays there for about a week. It'll fall off and you pass it in your stool. Um, but it sends a Wi-Fi signal to a receiver you wear for 48 to 96 hours, and it tells us the amount of acid in your esophagus. So for all those patients who aren't getting better with the acid medicines, often we'll do the next step be an endoscopy and a pH probe to figure out, is it truly reflux? And like I said, 75% of the time, when a patient comes to us and says they're not getting better with the acid medicines, we do this pH test, and we actually find it's not acid. It's nerve confusion, that functional heartburn. And those patients are treated very differently. Their problem isn't reflux. Their problem is nerve confusion. So different therapies that address nerve confusion, there are different medicines. Believe it or not, some old antidepressants have been shown to help, not because these patients are crazy or anxious, but it's because those medicines work by the chemicals serotonin and norepinephrine, which are involved in anxiety and depression. They're also involved in nerve transmission of the gut. In fact, 90, 95% of the body's serotonin is made in the gut. So medicines that modulate serotonin, and many of them are antidepressants, have been shown to help with nerve confusion in the gut. Many centers offer behavioral therapy, so cognitive behavioral therapy, diaphragmatic breathing, relaxation training, even hypnotherapy to treat this nerve confusion with great success. 70 to 90% symptom improvement. And here at the Cleveland Clinic, we do have a behavioral therapist who's excellent and offers many of these therapies for our patients. She's very used to dealing with um, patients who have functional heartburn with great success. It's wonderful. We also, uh, believe it or not, one of my colleagues has trained um, in acupuncture. And acupuncture has been shown to help this nerve confusion. Works amazingly well. So um, she has started offering acupuncture here. Um, and we are studying um, with one of my fellows transcutaneous electroacupuncture. This is when you put small electrodes that um, stick to the skin. So there's no needles. And they actually take an electrical current through some of the acupoints. We're studying that for the use in this functional heartburn. So there are a lot of treatments we can offer to these patients who've been through years of acid medicines with no improvement. Once we diagnose them correctly, we can offer them completely different therapies, which are highly, highly effective. Great. Thank you yeah. so much. It's been a pleasure. Mm -hmm. A lot of, lot of good information. Yeah. Thank you so much. And for our uh, listeners and viewers, to learn more about acid reflux or treatment options or to make an appointment, make sure you go to clevelandclinic.org slash swallowing center. And thank you again so much for being here today. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, thank you for having me. Thank you. And to listen to more of our Health Essentials podcast from our Cleveland Clinic experts, make sure you go to clevelandclinic.org slash H-E podcast. And for more health tips, news, and information from Cleveland Clinic, don't forget to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Cleveland Clinic, just one word. Thank you. We'll see you again next time. This concludes this Cleveland Clinic Health Essentials podcast. 
Thank you for listening. Join us again soon.